0: Okay, if you would please turn to the Gospel according to Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. I will be reading from verse 2 through verse 9. Luke 3, the middle of verse 2 to verse 9. The Word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make His paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by Him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Blessed be the reading of the word of God that came through John the Baptist, his servant. Father, I pray, therefore, you give us ears to hear to see the good news of the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. That we may revel in it. That we may never deny it. That we will lovingly proclaim it. To the glory of His name and to the salvation of people. Amen. Okay, last week we saw in verses... 1 to 6 that John the Baptist came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and that repentance we saw meant a turning around and going in the other direction a turning of the people's hearts back to God and that baptism which he's calling them to it says this outward sign of showing your real resolve to repent. To turn back to God. Baptism. They knew of proselyte baptism. They knew of dirty, unclean, unholy Gentiles who may convert. To Judaism, going through the waters of baptism. And John says, if your repentance is genuine, you will submit to such conversion back to God. And it was offensive to many Jews. And we saw, John says, this ministry, I mean, Luke says, this ministry of John's is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40. And all that we saw, therefore, last week, that was Luke. That was Luke's rehearsing of John's ministry, his interpretation of his ministry. John has not spoken yet. In verse 7, he's going to speak. And one thing we notice is that John did not have a very good marketing strategy. If you want people to buy your product and to join your ranks, you want to be pleasing to the customer. And especially to the leaders of the people. Because reach the leaders, you reach the people. But John did not seemingly read books like How to Win Friends and Influence People. So, the question that hangs over the church with texts like this is Are you the kind of person who, bottom line, is your felt needs? That's how you choose your religious life. I know what I feel like I need. I'm looking for a religious life and a church life where the nursery is immaculate. That's the bottom line. Or where the music and the band is just second to none. That's what I'm going after. Or where they have lots of sports teams to join and play. That will be the foundational reason of how I do my religiosity. Or the church is big enough to hide. Or, the church is small. Therefore, I could be significant in that church. Are those the reasons in the way you construct your life? Or, Is it foundationally based upon looking for God's truth? Even if it comes through a wild man in the desert region of the Jordan. Luke, starting with verse 7 now, gives us a glimpse of John's ministry. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by Him, Stop. You know what's stunning about that? Crowds came. They came day after day to hear John. This strange looking Nazarite, probably hadn't cut his hair. Guy who grew up a loner in the wilderness. He's got strange clothing on. We learn from Matthew, prophets' clothes. And he's not in the temple courts where other Jewish teachers are teaching or in the synagogues of the land and in the the towns throughout Galilee and Judea he's out there in the desert region of the Jordan preaching and they came Jesus a year or two later will say this what did you go out into the wilderness to see a reed shaken by the wind no what then did you go out to see A man dressed in soft clothing? No. Those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Among those born of women, none is greater than John. They did come. After 400 years of prophetic silence to the nation of Israel, a voice was crying in the wilderness. A strange, unusual voice. And they came. Now, as we continue to hear the message, just like the first century... We 21st century church-going religious people need to be careful not to be offended by a text like this. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by Him, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What we want to say, what in the world are you doing, John? The goal, John, is to get the people to like religion. You're a baptizer. You got to get as many people as you can into the waters of baptism. John's response would be, no, that's not the goal. The goal is to get these people saved from the inevitable coming wrath. That's what he would say, and that's what he was saying. And What Luke gives us here is not just merely one day certainly is a message he would preach over and over. It certainly is the theme of the core of what he is saying. And Luke gives us the picture. He said, not just to the Pharisees, and to the Sadducees. They were there. They were there day after day at times spying. They were there. But Luke lets us know he was saying to the crowds. And many of them, they were there I'm getting in line. I'm going to get baptized. You got it. This guy's a prophet, isn't he? And John's message was this. You brood of vipers. He calls them snakes. All of them. He calls them the offspring of serpents. Who? These Bible-correct Scripture that they had, synagogue-going religious people. You brood offspring children of serpents. He's saying your nature is the nature of of serpents. And the idea of being a snake or a serpent in the Old Testament Hebrew scripture is not a good one. You just open up the very beginning and there is the slithering snake. The serpent. Satan. And in Genesis 3, and they know this, God speaks to Satan. He speaks to the serpent. And he tells them what's going to happen down the road. The seed of the woman, eventually meaning Jesus Christ, will crush your head. One commentator, Daryl Bach on the Gospel of Luke, writes, Rather than calling his Jewish audience the chosen people, John is calling them children of the devil. They need to change or face the wrath of God. John addresses his audience as those who are opposed to God if they do not prepare for His coming. Now, another commentator who is superior to Daryl Bach says it this way as we listen to a dialogue between Jesus, the Lord, and the religious leaders of His day from John 8. The religious leaders answered Jesus, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father. Even God. And Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, then you would love me. Because I came from God. And I am here. I came not of my own accord, but God sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. So, John, you brood of vipers, your fellow Jews. This is true of everybody in all generations. Your natural state is as children of Satan, of sin, of the serpent. And that reality now in our text leads John to continue the metaphor. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The, the metaphor he's most likely has in his mind in calling them serpents and him growing up in the desert region is when brush fires would come about, snakes would come out of the ground, and they would flee the fire. And here, John says, that fire is God's wrath. Greek word, gay. His anger that is assuredly coming on judgment day. All that John is doing here is preaching one of the core aspects of the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ what he's doing later the Apostle Paul will say essentially the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2 he writes and if this is you this is good news because he's writing to believers to the church and that makes this reality of being a brood of vipers past tense it was true and if you're in Christ it's not true anymore as paul writes and you church were past tense dead in the trespasses and your sins and you were by nature children of wrath same word orge god's judging Condemnation poured out from His perfect holy anger. Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He'll go on to say, and these over here will go away to eternal punishment. But the righteous to eternal life. The Hebrew writer says it this way in chapter 10. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. I can go on and on. In the New Testament, I don't know how any Pastors can neglect this theme and have a clear conscience. I'm just going to take a, I just want to stop here for a little bit. Not a lot, there's not time for that. Just a, a large parenthesis on this biblical central theology that if you pull it out of what you think the gospel is, there is no gospel meaning the theology or the doctrine, the truth of God's coming holy just wrath. You see, God is God. I am who I am. Before anything outside of God ever came into being, there was always God who is. Holy, perfectly, sinlessly, absolutely righteous, beautiful, and good. And His purpose in creating anything never meant that He would take True worship from the only object of real joy, which is Himself, and put it upon any or anybody else. To do so would have been sin. God can never deny Himself. He has always and always is and always will act and move in the purpose of upholding His name. His glory. So when we speak of the love of God saving sinners, it is that. But don't ever understand God's love in saving sinners at the price of His eternal Son whom He did not spare but gave Him up for us all as anything less than God's eternal, perfect, omnipotent, holy, omniscient purpose to uphold His glory, His name, His holiness in the saving of sinners. Oh, the love of God is God, glorifying His name in saving some. And hell, the wrath of God, is also God's same purpose in upholding. His glory. The love of God and the wrath of God are simply the two ways in which He makes it clear that He always fully honors His glory, His name. Hell is real, it is forever, it is unending. It is not impersonal, it's very personal with God. it is His wrath in order to uphold His glory. And before any of us human beings die, God's mercy is constantly all around us. That you breathe is God's patience with. Our sin. That the rain falls and your crops grow and you got food on your table is absolute grace in mercy. As the text in Scripture says, He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good. And He sends rain on the just. And He sends it on the unjust. Now, I want you to listen very closely to the way the Apostle Paul lays this out in Romans 2 we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things that he just listed or do you you hear the next word or do you presume or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance but because of your hard, impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul just said, God's patience in your mortality now before death? Yes. But he's saying those who misinterpret the rain so that their crops grow, those who misinterpret their stock value rising, a healthy and good spouse or children or house values going up a good job you misinterpret that in the process you are accumulating wrath you're storing it up for that day and the scripture makes clear death Marks the end of God's patience. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. You know, I want to look at one more text from Paul in Romans, in Romans twelve nineteen. He's writing to Christians who have fled from the wrath of God. Christians are to know when they say to somebody I'm saved they should have an answer if they're asked saved from what and it has all kinds of impact on how we live and treat other human beings Paul says it this way to the church Romans 12:19 Never Avenge yourselves. But, leave that to the wrath of God. Because it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repent. The wrath of God in this verse is defined as God's vengeance. Vengeance is mine. And here, that wrath is connected, therefore, with God's response to something that's deserved. What's deserved is vengeance. And then he says, I'm going to repay it. So God's wrath is treated right here as repayment for something each person has done. And it's the same word as John the Baptist uses or gay. Wrath. It means perfect, holy anger meted out acted upon it means indignation Paul says this in Romans 2 verse 8 for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness there will be wrath and fury. There will be, in the Greek, our word, orge, wrath, and thumos. You can hear thermal, heat, fury. Now, those two words, together, they're used together over a hundred times in the Bible. Now, about a hundred years ago, the great Greek scholar A.T. Robertson says this about these two words, quote, God's anger, the word thumos, heat there, is His vehement fury or boiling rage. His wrath or gay is His settled indignation or His settled anger Robertson goes on says in other words god's anger in god's anger the emphasis falls on the emotional boiling intensity of it and in god's wrath the emphasis falls on the controlled settled considered Direction and focus of its application. End quote. There's no hard line between not two different things or different sides of the the essence of Judgment Day. Apart from being hidden in the Savior, God's anger—that's what wrath means. If you're wrathful, you're angry. That anger, that wrath with God is not like you or me. It's not uncontrolled. It's not out of impatience that's sinful. His anger is never out of control of His perfect wisdom perfect righteous his perfect justice his perfect holiness and his wrath is never i say this and apologize for all the preachers who have said it it's never impersonal cool indifferent it's always personal and wisely perfectly directed. So, Paul calls here in Romans 12. He repays and he repays vengeance and it makes it clear therefore that God's wrath is a response to sin. You don't have to worry about God's injustice. He doesn't have any. His wrath, His indignation, His vengeance is never, ever directed toward the innocent person. And because God is meticulously just, therefore that repayment of vengeance will be absolutely suitable. Vengeance. You can be sure That it will never be more than one deserves. And it will never be less than one deserves. It will be perfect, holy justice. Are you saved? To be saved from God's wrath is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And now, here comes John the Baptist on the scene down by the Jordan River as the forerunner of Jesus who is the Savior. And what John is doing, he is preaching, have a heart transplant that receives the Savior. Why? Because a person's heart toward Jesus is the key to avoiding the assured coming wrath. That's I want to invite someone to speak for one minute. Just hear him. As the Apostle Paul comes and say, Paul, give us your word on this reality. There's wrath. And there's Jesus who bore the wrath of God for many. Here's Paul's comment. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. That last part is glorious, church. He is coming to forever be Adored and glorified by all who have believed. But not outside the context where sweet, precious Lord Jesus will come to inflict vengeance on all who have spurned the gospel. so in that context think about the value of, of clear non-watered down speakers like the Apostle Paul or like John the Baptist it's true John's preaching was not a feel good message it, It doesn't boost a person's self-esteem to be called a snake, a serpent, a child of Satan. But, here's the point of John. That's the gospel. That's the good news that John is preaching. Because what he's preaching is that there is an escape from the coming wrath. He says you can flee from it. You can flee to repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And when God forgives your sins, it's the same as Him removing that future wrath towards you. That's His message. It's the same as Romans 8.1. Have you fled for refuge in Christ in repentance of faith? There is therefore now no condemnation, no wrath for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now back to the text notice that John he put this in a question form okay who Warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Now, is he asking a genuine question here that he's looking for the answer? Like, hmm, why are you all? Some who who told you? Or, or is it a rhetorical device where John's always saying and he's getting over to point? I doubt the sincerity of all of you coming here for baptism. I don't think it's purely either one of those. There's a taste of it. I think what it is, is this rhetorical question, this rhetorical device to get into their conscience, into their minds, to be understanding and hearing this message where he's saying, do you really understand what my baptism is about? John's question here is a call for people to see that his message about wrath requires genuine turning. Genuine repentance in order to escape the coming judgment. With John, in this message, the stakes are really I. He's saying, those of you who do understand who it is that's calling you through my message, you're going to escape the wrath of God. This is the good news to you. And He's saying, those of you who don't really understand who's calling and what this is all about, but you're just, you're just joining the crowd." You're just following the new religious fad. You will not escape God's personal judgment which is coming to you. He's saying clearly in His message over and over, Watch out for false repentance. For merely external religiosity of coming to the waters of baptism, he's saying, "It's his first and foremost a heart issue, not an intellect issue. It's where your heart is in response to what your mind is seeing. And even today in the 21st century, many people may have momentary scares of judgment, or dying, and there's God, and then what? Is there really a hell? And they may come down in a church service or an evangelistic meeting to an altar call, and they really feel afraid, and they're asked, would you like to say a prayer and not go to hell? No, duh. Who wouldn't? Not only that, my life's been a wreck for the last eight years, and it's been very unhappy. I'll try the Jesus thing, and they do. But that person may not have faced the deep corruption of his serpent nature. This deep corruption of his heart towards God and of his offense toward the one true, beautiful, holy, living God that there's no genuine sorrow for offending God and there's no true taste for the preciousness of the Savior, of his soul, Jesus Christ. Is there repentance? In his new church going? And some moral cleanup. It's all maybe superficial. No fruit bearing. And so that question there of John's who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? it leads to a conclusion in the form of a command. Now, literally in the Greek, the word therefore, it should appear in your English version. I don't know why the ESV left it out. Because of this reality. Hear the message. Hear who's really calling. Understand what this is really about. And therefore, verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In other words, he's saying, it's not about mere washing in the water, but it's a response of the heart Baptism signifies. And that response, that genuine repentance, produces the fruits of saving faith, not the other kind of faith. And now, watch the warning now John goes on to give to the Jews, especially the Jewish leaders. And really, to many of us, over 2,000 years of church history, where we get caught up in our religious heritage, our programs, our moralisms, he says. And do not begin to say to yourselves... (coughs) We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. In other words, he's saying, watch out for this attitude. Don't tell me I need to embrace Jesus personally and be saved. I was baptized as a baby, and I made my first Holy Communion, and I was confirmed, and I've been a Mass goer all my life. I used to run into that attitude all the time in my street witnessing. Alright, just so you know that I'm an equal opportunist. I was born and raised up in the Baptist church. Or as a Pentecostal, or a Charismatic, or a Presbyterian, or a blah blah evangelical. I walked an aisle, I said, a pre- I believe in Jesus. I know I'm not really, you know, a covenant member of a church. I, and I know that I kind of do things differently than, you know, the one I used to go to church and not, uh, okay, but. I believe in Jesus, and I just kind of like have grown and constructed my own spiritual identity as a Christian and toward Jesus. John says, Don't say, better watch your heart when you say, I'm Jewish. I keep kosher. I give 10% of all my earnings. I'm circumcised going. I keep the feasts. I'm a child of Abraham. You see those things there? Kosher. Circumcised the eighth day. (laughs) I've got badges on. I'm fine. It's them, the Gentiles, you should go tell. Do not. We have Abraham is our father. He's saying, do not, any of you Pharisees or Sadducees or fishermen or tax collectors, don't any of you think that you are personally safe from God's wrath just because you outwardly belong to a religious community. You gotta remember, and Luke lets us know later, many, the vast majority of the religious leaders refused to be baptized by John. John says, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not say to yourselves, Well, we have Abraham as our for or as our father. For I tell you, Oh, you've got to hear this gospel. I tell you, God is able to raise up from these rocks in the riverbed children for Abraham. You know your science kids? There's only three things essentially in the world. Vegetable, animal, mineral two of them are alive the one he chose is dead 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 doesn't it make sense how the Paul says Christian this is what happened to you you were a rock you were an inanimate object you were dead to God and he raised you up This is stunning because it's the same thing Jesus will go on to say, same thing that Paul will go on to say that being a child of Abraham, that is a child of saving faith, is not dependent on your Jewishness or your Roman Catholicness or your Protestantism or your evangelical church going. It is based on one thing God is able. It's based only on God's mercy. He can take dead inanimate rocks and raise up living children to Abraham because God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Here's how the commentator Daryl Bach concludes, and I think he's right on. The issue here of becoming God's child is not a matter of inheritance but of God's power and work. The picture of God producing life out of an inanimate object attributes adoption into God's family to the work of God and not To the natural rights of having a certain genealogy. The stones picture dead inanimate creation. Which God brings miraculously to life. The sin of pride and arrogance in the Jews. And in the church forgets this one central reality all the time. And that is this. The freedom of God. That God is never obligated by outside forces. He is absolutely free to have mercy on whom? Notice, not based upon the badges on the chest. To have mercy on whom He has mercy. Are you going to trust in something of your genealogy, your religiosity? God can take this rock and make a Christian. And so verse 9 repeats explicitly the warning He already gave in verse 7. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Message well received. Don't trust in your do-goodism. In your parents' religion. In your heritage. Don't even trust in this, Christian. I can't believe that person won't believe the gospel. I'm so smart. Do you not know you were a rock? If you were a rock and now you're a living child of Abraham and his covenant, Where? is room to boast. Don't boast in anything. But what comes out of this message is this. John is saying, what really matters here is do you have the sign that God came and landed? And that rock became a living stone. This is John's message. He says that sign is repentance that bears fruits. The Apostle Peter said the same thing. He just said it very differently. But he doesn't mean something different. He says, oh, Christian? Oh, you're a believer? Then this is what I assume. Though you have not personally seen Jesus you love Him. Though you do not see Him, oh yeah, there's pain. Oh, Peter was clear about that. There's lots of grief and lots of pain in real life, okay? But though you don't now see Him, you, you rejoice. With a type of joy that's so different than your football team winning. It, it's a joy that's inexpressible. It's filled with glory. It, it is that Love of Jesus, that joy in Jesus, that issues in the salvation of your soul. He's saying the same thing. That's what John is preaching. Come to Him. Open your heart. Understand you're a dead rock of wrath. And receive His mercy. And so I'm going to close. We'll come back next time, God willing, where John's going to give illustrations of repentance. But for this morning, I just want to close with a a statement or two, and a question or two. Here's a statement that we're hearing from John. God exists. And God is holy. And every human being since Adam except one has sinned and fallen short of glorifying God and have done constantly over and over eternal offense toward the Holy God. And therefore Every person is a child of God's holy, perfect wrath. So the question is, have you fled with a heartfelt desperateness away from your deserved coming eternal wrath and punishment to the substitute? Who came and Himself absorbed and abhor and experienced your wrath for you on the cross. And was raised from the dead to put you right with God. If not, and Do not trust in your religious heritage. If not, then as John says, turn around and embrace Jesus as the treasure, as the Savior that He is. And be delivered from God's wrath. And enjoy that God. As your loving Heavenly Father. By which we do cry out, Abba, Daddy. Next question. Has God shown mercy on you and snatched you from the fire? And placed you safely in Jesus Christ? Okay then Church. Let us never, therefore, water down the goodness of Jesus Christ by downplaying the reality of the fearsome judgment that is coming and is described by John in the words, even now, The axe is laid at the root of the trees and every tree therefore that does not bear fruit will be cut down and it will be thrown into the fire. Let us take seriously the warning of our brother J.C. Ryle who wrote about 120 years ago these words to us. Let us beware of being wise above that which is written in Scripture. And being we think we're being more charitable than Scripture itself. Let the language of John the Baptist be deeply graven in our hearts. Let us never be ashamed to avow our firm belief that there is A wrath to come for the impenitent. And that it is possible for a man to be lost as well as to be saved. To be silent on the subject is positive treachery to men and women's souls. It only encourages them to persevere in wickedness and it fosters in their minds the devil's old delusion. You shall not surely die. That Christian is surely our best friend who tells us honestly of danger and warns us, like John the Baptist, to flee. From the wrath to come. And so, what a gospel. I say, is Christ? Your Savior, have you fled from the coming wrath by embracing the only wrath-bearing substitute so that you don't have to? But not only that, He has given you His Sonship and made you brothers and sisters forever to enjoy the glory of His Father. There is no greater joy, therefore, than that which is found In Jesus our Savior. So let us spend these closing minutes. Really. Worshiping. Being thankful for Jesus. In this great gospel. Amen.